Hello and welcome to another episode of Quick Looks. This is Quick Looks episode 14. It's being recorded on Monday, the 28th of March, 2016. Uh, in this episode, uh, Lloyd Keller and I are going to be talking about three new titles, uh, The Golden Ages and its expansion, uh, Cults and Culture from Stronghold Games. Uh, we're also going to be covering Neanderthal from Sierra Madre Games. And finally, we're going to cover the game Mombasa, which is just so much fun to say. Mombasa. Mombasa. Say it again, Lloyd. Ooh, ooh, Mombasa. 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 <laughs> okay, Lloyd, I'd like you to say hello to everybody today as uh, Ed. Remember Ed from as The Lion King, Ed. the hyena? <laughs> That was no, that was too creepy. No, that was, was too creepy. Was, I don't know. Ed was like, ooh. <laughs> Remember Ed was like, and they always just said like Ed, Ed, like Ed never really said anything. He no, like laughed. He kind of laughed. He was awesome. He reminded me of like Bill the Cat from the old comics. Yeah, gag, gag, barf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, now that we have lost everybody, um, we're gonna start <laughs> get ready to do uh, some reviewing here. We're gonna be talking uh, first about a new title from uh, Stronghold Games. It's called The Golden Ages. Uh, this is by Luigi Farini. Uh, this is a game that actually is not brand spanking new. It's been out for a little while. Uh, however, uh, what has made this game new is the fact that it has uh, a reprint from Stronghold Games. Um, but it also, uh, the, the expansion has come out, which is uh, Cults and Culture. Um, which is also uh, put out by Stronghold Games. And so uh, we've played The Golden Ages quite a few times. We played it a couple years ago, I think, when it first came out, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, over in Jersey at that convention. Yeah, because right. we had played it when Stephen was first looking at yeah, publishing yeah, it. Yeah, he was, he was yeah. taking a peek at it, and we had played it. And, and uh, some of the other people um, had played it as well that uh, you know Stephen knows and that we know. And everybody kind of had a nice kind of positive reaction to it. Um, and then uh, you know I got the news that he was going to be doing a reprint, and he was going to be doing uh, the uh, expansion, expansion, which was just really, really kind of uh, nifty. Um, but, you know, you never know exactly what an expansion is going to add or what it's not going to add. Um, and so that's going to kind of be more of the focus uh, because people out there, I think, might already be familiar with the Golden Ages. But if not, we'll give a little bit of an overview first. So uh, the Golden Ages is um, a really, really interesting civilization game. It's, it's a I would call it a light civilization game. Uh, I would call it light because it is quite streamlined, kind of eurified as a civilization game. It is not without conflict. Conflict is uh, can be very important in the game. Uh, there are ways that you can directly go after uh, another player. But for the most part, you're going to be exploring, finding new territory, gaining control of resources. You have your own sort of personal little tech tree that you're going to be developing. You're going to be building wonders. You're going to be um, you know, gaining money in order to develop further technologies. You're going to be uh, putting together nice little engines, synergies for the different resources on the board uh, where you're going to be gaining either extra money or points or something for having the most of a particular type of resource or for each particular type of resource you have. So if I own a lot of uh, iron fields and I can gain uh, a, a card that is going to give me points for each iron field that I control or something. So there's all sorts of nice little combos and clever card play. Um, movement, however, is very abstracted. Uh, combat, very, very abstracted. And abstracted, I think, in a good way because it makes it very easy to play. And yet it doesn't strip out like the soul of the game. Um, and, and kind of the way I think of Golden Ages, uh, this is a game for two to four players. Um, it was released back in 2014, ages 12 and up. And it was originally a Quinted Games edition. And that, that actually, I have the original edition of that. And then now, of course, it's been republished. And uh, as a partnership and Stronghold Games uh, has the, the reprint here. But the thing about this game, when I talk about it with people, is I think it's probably the best light civilization game that I've played. Like, to me, my go-to civilization game right now is still Clash of Cultures with its expansion. Yes. And I still have a soft spot for advanced civilization as, like, the ultimate um, however, uh, you know, there's been so many other games that have tried to do Civilization Light and failed. Um, for example, one of my favorite designers, Martin Wallace, released uh, Tempest, 
which was an, an attempt at a really streamlined, stripped down kind of civilization feel that dealt very interestingly with this idea of dissemination of information once uh, the genie's out of the bottle and you discover a particular type of technology. You really only have it exclusively for one turn and then everybody else gets it kind of for free. Because you can't keep knowledge in, you know, it's like uh, the Chinese inventing gunpowder, you know, Um, once that was kind of discovered, Marco Polo wrote about it and other explorers had come in contact with Asia and China in particular, gunpowder quickly became uh, disseminated uh, around the world. And so I really like that part of it. But the game itself fell really flat. It was very dry, very mechanical and not really all that interesting ultimately. This one kind of is like, you know, what if Tempest had been a successful game? You know, what if Tempest had worked? (laughs) And I think that that's where this game really hits it because it is a light civilization game, in my opinion, and yet it works extremely well. So uh, that's kind of a basic overview of the game. You're going to be just kind of doing all of these different things. Um, there is a really unique passing system in this game, right, Lloyd? I love the passing system in this game because if you are limited in the number of actions that you're taking in and you decide to pass, every time it comes back around to you as other players take actions, you get money. Yeah, two bucks. And it's, it's a great way for you know you to kind of balance out the fact that maybe you couldn't do a lot on your turn right but now if everybody keeps taking turns and letting you pass over and over again you're making money and money's hard to come by in this game so it's a great way to kind of balance out that that whole feel yes and it also really gives the other players kind of something to think about it's like i could do more things i can do more things but is it going to behoove me to do that or is it going to be better for me to pass because I'm just feeding my opponent over there or possibly multiple opponents right. a lot of money? And so you have to really kind of do that cost analysis in your head. And it's one of the more interesting parts of the game. So, all right, that's the base game. Now, fast forward to uh, Cults and Cultures coming out. Now, this is a new expansion that was added to the game. And it really is what I consider to be the best of all possible expansions because it adds a lot to the game that I particularly really enjoy without an enormous amount of rules overhead, without a lot of uh, fiddliness, okay? Now, there's definitely more to the game, and there is definitely... It increases the time. Mm -hmm. It it increases the time to play, without a doubt. Um, But it doesn't make it more complicated. It doesn't make it more fiddly, which is the kind of the part that I really appreciate about it. So in the expansion, you're going to be getting um, pieces and parts that you need for a fifth player. That's the first thing you're going to get. And I've never played this five players. I'll come right out and say it. I don't know that I would ever want to. Four players, I think, is really enough for me. Yeah. Um, I think playing it with five players would really push the time to the point where I, I might downtime might be an issue. You know, you might start to get a little bored or something. So, uh, not because the game's boring, but because there's just too long of a, a wait period. Right. Now, it does have that kind of really cool rondel effect, though. The way the game is played, you don't take all of the possible actions you can take and then go to the next person. You are doing one thing at a time, round robin, in turn order, and you just keep doing that until people start to drop out by passing. And so you're never really like totally bored uh, or totally feeling like there's too much downtime, um, which is a, a better term than bored. Because the turns kind of go relatively quickly. Now, as the game moves on and things become more and more important and crunchy, it might take a couple of people a minute or two to figure out what they want to do or the order in which they want to do things. And so they they kind of sit there for a minute. I know I've done that. But it's still not an excessive amount of time. So I think the game works. And I would suspect it would work with five, but I don't know that I'd want to try it. I, I think the map is perfect for four. I like the competition, the tightness of it. And so I haven't tried it with five, so full disclosure there. You also get a lot of new cards. You get a lot of new cards. You get new wonder cards. You get new leader cards. You get all these different cards that you add, new buildings Mm -hmm. that you add to the existing kind of uh, sets of cards that come in the base game. Okay. Um, There's also the main meat of the expansion, which is the cults part. Okay. So uh, the designers have used the term cults for religion. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I'm sure some people might not like that, but I don't particularly care. <laughs> um, so what we're talking about here is the idea that uh, the, the religion and spread of religion is something now that you're going to be thinking about in the game. And there's a whole sort of a culture track now. And this culture track, uh, you are going to be able to advance on this culture track in a number of different categories depending on what you've achieved in the game. So if I've built at least one wonder, I can advance on the culture track. When I do any kind of advancement on the culture track, I'm going to be able to take a culture card. And the culture cards are going to do different things for you. They're either going to give you some kind of points or going to give you something towards an engine that you might be building saying, hey, every time you control a new resource with uh, wheat, uh, you're going to gain an extra dollar. Or, you know, they're going to do something like that for you. There's also buildings that are kind of mixed in there. So you can kind of sneak out a building. Mm -hmm. uh, buildings in the base game are kind of limited. Um, it's very difficult to uh, snag a building. There's, there's a very limited number each round. And so buildings are hard to come by. So you might be able to snag a building from the culture card uh, display, which is going to be out there. Uh, and it just refreshes as people take cards. So... The culture cards are really kind of interesting. And then one of the culture cards is these religious cards. It'll say like mysticism or it'll mm -hmm. say, you know, whatever. And when you take that card, it has little spaces on it for these little tiny square chits. And these little square chits have um, different symbols on them representing the different world religions. So you might have something like, uh, um, you know, uh, Christianity or Judaism or Islam. Or you might have, uh, there's Buddhism. There's Buddhism. a Buddha. I think there's Taoism. Um, I'm trying to think of what the Hinduism. Yes, in Hindu. uh, I think the, the the Hindi script. If I'm if I'm recognizing that as a Hindi script, so you've got all of these kind of little icons. You put them on your card, and then what happens in game terms is every time you move and you found another city, which is one of the actions you can take in the base game, if there is another city near you, next to you, orthogonally, you can kind of plop down a religion marker there and say, hey, you know. Let me tell you about Jesus, right? <laughs> and so you plop your little marker down there, and that is going to free up one of those spots on your cards where you have these chits, and underneath each of those chits is a point value. So it might be two points, might be three points. I think one of the cards is like five points, five doesn't points it? Like five per points per religion chit. that you get out there, yep. So as you disseminate religion and spread it to the people and proselytize and all this kind of fun stuff, you're going to be gaining points. Even more sweetly, if you can manage to work it so that you're spreading it to your own cities, you're going to gain points that way too. Because at the end of the game, you're going to be able to gain a victory point for every religion chip Mm -hmm. that is in one of your cities on the board. And there could be multiple because you can put different, as long as they're different, you can put multiple religion chits on any city. And so you might end up with one city that has four different religion uh, markers on it, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is like a really cool, diverse city, you know? Uh, I like to think of it, you know, hopefully as an American city where, uh, like the one I grew up with, uh, you know, where there's uh, a, a, an Islamic uh, mosque, uh, down the road, there was a, a Lord Shiva's temple. There were more Catholic churches than you could throw a stick at. Um, there are you know, tons of uh, other uh, Christian churches and, and uh, a couple of big synagogues. And mm -hmm. you know, they were all just in my home neighborhood within a 20-mile span or 10-mile span of where I lived. And um, so I'm kind of like envisioning that. Like, you know, here's this cool little diverse city with all of this religion kind of uh, peacefully coexisting in there. And isn't that kind of nifty? Um, and so... Whoever owns the city gets those points. So you're either handing a point to another player so that you can gain the points listed on your card, or you can try to just self-propagate and, <laughs> and kind of get yourself a, a bunch of points. So it's really, really interesting the way religion works in here. And then one of my favorite cards in the game in the new expansion is the communism card. Which I got, and which I you used got. very well. That was awesome. So tell them about the communism card. So when you... Uh Get the Communism Culture card. It gives you the option of paying money and discarding religion in every city you control. But instead of getting one point apiece for those religion tokens, you get two points for each one. Right, right. So I ended up making like 10 or 12 points. Yep. By when banishing I, religion. By banishing religion and saying, <laughs> no, you must abide by my government now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was, was great. It was very thematic. Like it, it was, was a very thematic little card. And I was like, wow, that's like really cool. And what had set me up 
the turn before that was I had, uh, again, one of these culture cards that let me put not just one chit from my religion card out, right. but up to four of them to uh, adjacent cities. So when I built that city, I actually plopped all three of the chits off of my card. Yeah, yeah. I and then on that. the following yeah. turn, I'm like, I gave you religion and now I take it away. And it was <laughs> awesome because I got a lot of points for it. You did. I totally did. did. So, yeah, it's, it's really kind of cool, like the different things that you can do. And then, of course, you can move up these culture tracks and gain these culture cards in multiple ways. So you can move up for having wonders built. You move up for having a certain amount of money. You don't have to spend the money. You just have to have it. Um, it's like 6, 12, uh, 18, I Something think, for the like money. That, yeah. uh, you move up for the number of cities you have on the board. You can move up for the number of wars that you fought. Yeah. So, like, if you fight, um, you know, every time you fight a war in this game, basically all that you do is you move one of your pieces into a region where there's pieces of another player and you say, Fight me, and then. Fight me. But it's not really a fight. It's more of a. It's more of a beatdown. So because what you do is you basically automatically win, as the aggressor. You remove the pieces of the other player, and um, then you have the option of kind of like exhausting your dude and, and putting a, a new settlement of your own there if you want to, uh, but you have to pay money. So like the first battle you fight, I think it's like four bucks. Yeah. And then like the second one is like, you know, six and then it keeps getting more and more expensive. Like one of the last wars that you can fight will cost you like it's either 12 or 16 or or something like 12 or 15 bucks to fight that last battle. And so it encourages you to have those conflicts, but without like being excessive about it because it gets more and more expensive. And so some of the cards in the culture track will give you an additional slot to fight an additional war if you really want to be a warmonger about it. Right. And so there's just really, really interesting mechanics uh, in this expansion that just augment the base game. And that's why I really like it so much, because it, it takes everything I like about the base game, which is quite a bit, and then adds more without making it unwieldy. A lot of times expansions make things unwieldy. And this really added a whole lot without making it uh, super, you know, more complex. Um, it does add some playtime because a lot of those culture actions, you don't need to exhaust a person for it. You just do it. Mm-hmm. And so it gives you uh, more actions, but that also tends to lengthen the rounds. And it also tends to make very tempting those things we talked about earlier, like where somebody passes and it's like, well, geez, I've got three culture actions that I was looking to take over the next three rounds um, you know, coming around to my turn and, you know, darn it, these are really good actions. And so I don't care if I feed him $6, -hmm. I'm going to take these actions anyway, you know? And so it really kind of changes the dynamics there too. So everything about the golden age, uh, cults and culture, I think really is a winner. Uh, there's, there's a whole little display on the side of these cool little culture cards now. So that now, uh, one of the actions you can take in the base game is you can basically pass, and do what's called go to the Agora. And when you go to the Agora, you get like, you know, what is it, two victory points, right? It's like Something no big like deal. That. It's either yeah. one or two victory points. So it's kind of like if you got nothing better to do, you pass and go to the Agora. Well, now if you go to the Agora, you can take one of these masterpiece cards. They're like great works of art cards. And so they're either going to give you more victory points than you would have by just passing, or perhaps they'll give you victory points and money. Mm-hmm. You know, which could be really crucial because sometimes you're only a buck or two short of another advance, and those advancements are worth victory points. Those advancements really are important in gameplay terms. Some of them get you big time uh, end game bonuses, uh, the final kind of column of advancements on the board. So there's all of these neat synergies that develop in this game, and so I really love this. Like this to me takes the Golden Ages, which was a game that I really liked and kept in my collection because if I didn't have time for Clash of Cultures or I, you know, the people I was playing with didn't want something that heavy, then I could take this game with its cool you know, leaders and wonders and history's judgment cards and, yeah. and all of these cool concepts that uh, Luigi Farini came up with and give like this really awesome little civilization game feel in a couple of hours and so i really enjoy this one um there's absolutely nothing about this expansion that i don't like is is there anything that uh, you're thinking of lloyd that might have made it better for you or or any kind of complaints that you have no i didn't really have any complaints like i said um 
I love the way that the cards worked. I love the cool little synergies you get off of these culture cards because it, you're you're absolutely right. It doesn't really add a whole lot of new rules. Right. It's just more cards and more things you're able to do. <clears throat> and if you get into a position like I was in where I was able to snag this card that does this and then follow it up on my next turn with this card that does this, I mean, that's just more fun for me than in the game. Right. And I even had one of the uh, I had one of the governments at one point that gave me an extra two or three bucks every time every I passed. Time passed yeah. So that really made it more painful for you and Carter. Like, ooh, I'm going to pass now, and yeah, you, you got guys like three me, bucks or something. I got yeah, like three yeah. or f- I, by the end of the game, it was four at least. Wow! Yeah, because yeah. it was almost an extra victory point every single time I passed. Yeah, and the bonuses nice. stack. Yeah, and yeah. they stack, so it was great. Um, so yeah, I mean, I have no complaints about this game. Uh, I do agree. This is a nice kind of beginner's Civ game yeah. because, you know, everything is just as important as it needs to be. I like the fact that you're limited to the number of wars yeah. that you can actually have. So you, you don't have that player that wants to be really aggressive and just smash across the board. No, they can only do it maybe three times. And then if they're lucky enough to get one of the culture cards that gives them maybe that fourth war or even if they get one that gives them a fifth war. Well, you can kind of see that happening. Right. And you can snag that culture card out from underneath them if you do it the yeah. right way. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think that there's – I think you, you start off with either four or five in the base game uh, for, for wars. But then, yeah, you're talking about adding more. Yeah. And they get so expensive. Yeah. And you look at you know what you get. Because every time you fight a war, you get a little chit. And that little chit has a value on it somewhere between one and five, I think, like that. Something like that. So you get victory points for the wars. But, you know, when you kind of weigh that against a larger technology that might get you four victory points or some of the big ones that get you uh, huge instant victory points. Like when you take that last tile and that last column and score three victory points for every diamond that you control. I mean, that's a whole lot more than spending all my money to fight a war. Right. So I, I think the game encourages an end to war as things move along. And that's something that I really appreciate about it. So, uh, well, I think it sounds like for us, uh, the Golden Ages and its expansion, Cults and Culture, are both really winners and, and ones that we would definitely give a thumbs up to. Yes? Oh, definitely. All right. So that is our review for The Golden Ages and Cults and Cultures by uh, Luigi Farini. Uh, art by Alexandra Roche, uh, published by, uh, here in North America, Stronghold Games, originally by Quinted Games. So uh, that's The Golden Ages. So the next game up for us uh, this evening for review is a game called Neanderthal. This is by uh, Phil Eklund and Sierra Madre Games. Um, This is a game that is kind of a a sequel to the game Greenland uh, that was released by uh, uh, Phil Eklund and uh, Philip uh, Philip Klarman. Um, And I actually had the opportunity to talk with them uh, for people who uh, might not be familiar with. There's an old episode of The Long View. If you go back in the archives at thelongviewpodcast.com or here on BGG, you'll see that there's a a whole discussion that I did with uh, Philip Klarman and Phil Eklund about game design, and in particular about the game of Greenland. Uh, Well, this is uh, Neanderthal, and Neanderthal is sort of a, um, it's like a prequel, I guess you'd say, to Greenland, all right? I think I originally said it's like a sequel, but it's a sequel because it came out later, but subject matter-wise, it's a prequel, okay? So it's like the Star Wars movies, you know? It's it's like a sequel prequel, yeah. It's out of order, but (laughs) it'll make sense when you see them all together. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So Neanderthal is is a game that is uh, basically about uh, the the origin of the human species. So you have – it's a one-to-three player game. In the game, you're going to be one of sort of the three early hominid uh, species um, or, you know, early humans. So uh, you're either going to be Neanderthal, you're going to be Archaic, or you're going to be Cro-Magnon, Okay. And uh, this is kind of represented as, as the three different players and the three different player colors. And you start off the game on what's called the vocal side, right? And so this is the earliest kind of human side where you're just trying to kind of figure out language and communication and uh, the ideas of, you know, words and social sort of knowledge, knowledge about the natural world and like technical knowledge, like tool making knowledge and things of that nature. And 
one of the interesting things about the game is that as you are playing the game and trying to survive, really, which is what uh, it's mostly about, you are trying to sort of uh, adapt and evolve your own brain to the point where you can sort of um, evolve and flip, okay? On the other side of your placard is what's called the tribal side. And so if you can sort of graduate, if you want to think of it that way, um, from the vocal side to the tribal side, that's going to open up a whole different sort of slew of options for you in the game. So every player is going to start off with one of these placards of one of these three species. And if you're only playing with two, you can just play with two out of the three. If you, you can even play it solo if you want to. And you're going to start off with a, a, a two rows of cards, okay? There's sort of the north row and the south row. And for people who've played Greenland before, this is going to be very familiar. And this represents Ice Age Europe, okay? And so you're going to flip up uh, six of those cards in the north row and six in the south row. And these are going to represent different locations and hunting kind of biomes, right? Mm-hmm. So you might go somewhere where you're looking, you know, to fish for flounder. Or there might be uh, the, the great, uh, you know, hunting card of the European ass. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite because the European ass uh, leads to a lot of offspring and uh, all sorts of good ideas uh, through uh, the, the represented by these colored discs. There's also, uh, you know, like uh, elk and, you know, caribou and uh, maybe it's not elk. I think it's caribou. And um, then you have like predators, right? You have like saber tooth kind of cats and, um, you, you know, you have hyenas and different kinds of predators. You have bears, um, and, and so there are things that you can hunt. There's mammoths and things, and there's things that you can fish for. There are things that you can gather. You can gather some food if you are a gathering species, or if you adapt and become a gathering species, you can kind of go in and, and gather enough to, to maybe uh, have an, an offspring each generation. Um, but a lot of the game is going to sort of revolve around your population. So you have your placard, and you have these cubes which represent your hunters, and you have these discs. These discs come in three colors, and these discs represent your vocabulary. These are the different sort of ideas and words that you have that you'll use in the game. Very abstracted, mm-hmm. okay? They're just colored discs, but they're representing the, the sort of things like the the organization and the things that you would say to each other and your hunters and we're going to do this and uh, different ideas that you're going to sort of start to gather so that as you develop into a tribal kind of a culture, you're going to say, hey, you know, remember that animal that we kept hunting and killing over and over? I think we could take that wolf and I think we could turn it into like something that would warn us or protect us. We could domesticate that. Yeah. Or maybe you could domesticate uh, the European ass or donkey, which word i you know it's just funny more funny to say european ass (laughs) um so because you know it's in game terms it's a very attractive card because it gives you i think like four offspring and it allows you to kind of uh remove two discs uh two of your vocabulary discs and when i talk about removing them it's because you have these discs in front of you you're trying to get some of them onto your brain kind of placard so that you can flip but then you're also going to use these discs every time you kind of um, are are looking to develop an elder every time you're looking to develop an idea you're going to put these discs of different colors underneath your cubes and they're called um, for lack of a better term they're like immaturity discs they're like discs that you have to get rid of before that person grows up comes of age fills its role in your little culture right so I might want to have what's called a, a napper, which is a, a specialized hunter who's going to give me like an alpha male hunter who's going to be super, super good at what they do and that they're always going to succeed. Uh, you don't have to like roll a die for them, but they start off immature. It's almost like you have to train them first, right? Mm-hmm. And you represent that by sliding one of your vocabulary discs underneath that cube when you make the decision to develop this napper um, or a trapper, which is going to work for small game. And so you've got these kind of ideas, and then you have to clear those discs underneath, and you clear them by hunting. So if I go and hunt uh, that card that I was talking about, or I go and hunt a woolly mammoth or, or whatever, not only am I, I going to get enough meat to feed my family and feed my tribe so that I get more offspring, 
but I'm also going to be able to start clearing some of those discs, which are going to then activate that napper or that trapper. Or uh, one of the other things you can do is gain daughters, right? So mm-hmm. you have young ladies who have all these new ideas. I think it's kind of fun that in the game, it's the daughters that bring all of the ideas to mm-hmm. your culture. And so there's like singing woman and there's, you know, walkabout woman and there's all of these uh, daughter cards that everybody will have the uh, the option to kind of bid for, to kind of like, uh, you know, take them into their tribe. And when you bid for them, you bid with, you guessed it, these little vocabulary discs. And so you'll have to clear those discs before she's old enough and mature enough to share her knowledge with your tribe. And she usually will give some sort of cool game benefit. And then she's also eligible to be married which is another interesting part of the game because then rival members from other um, you know, hu- uh, hominid species will come and court your daughter and will try to marry her because if they can marry her, they gain the ability that the daughter has. She gives her knowledge back to the new tribe, right? So uh, then you can also do this weird kind of like, you know, hillbilly, marry your own daughter, like Craster's <laughs> daughter things, which is a little creepy. But, but you can also try to marry your own daughter um, which, you know, would just symbolize like, you know, somebody in the larger, your larger tribe marrying, you know, daughter of someone else in the tribe. So it's not quite, you know, banjo playing deliverance hillbilly, but it's, it's pretty lot, darn close. It's a lot safer. It's really close. Yeah. Because, you know, your own daughter's not going to kill your own tribe member. That's true. That's Whereas true. my yeah. daughters were always trying to You're kill Carter. Carter. Oh my they, God. They, they were killed awesome. like three of Carter's suitors. Like yes. Carter tried to marry your daughter three times and she stabbed him in the eye. Well, no, no, no. She was the weather woman. <laughs> so she was calling down the lightning. <laughs> and then she knocked him over with the strong wind. Yeah, like, it did. was awesome. She did, yeah. <laughs> um, and so there, there's this really I, – I, I have a feeling we're being really confusing in this review. <laughs> but I think it's because it's really impossible to kind of describe how a Phil Eklund game is played uh, just with an audio format. So – what I'm trying to get across to people who are listening is this is a game that has novel mechanics, very interesting ideas, but most importantly, first and foremost, it tells an amazing story. And the story it tells is of survival, constant death, suffering, <laughs> yeah, struggle, and then moments of just incredible triumph and times of just bounty and wonderfulness as you have, you know, almost all 15 of your possible cubes representing your tribe members and everybody's just wandering around the campfire high-fiving each other and then, like, my guys, right? And then the comet they comes went, along. And then the comet comes along, right? Chaos comes along and just rips <laughs> apart your whole culture. You, like, lose half your people. Your elders die. You lose your fire starter. No one even knows how to start a fire anymore. <laughs> so then you're like dying a frostbite, frostbite. And you go and try to get like some Arctic flounder. And you like, <laughs> you roll to try to see if you can succeed. And like, you get like a six of the dude that you sent out. Like he just, he just froze to <laughs> death froze. on the ice. He's just laying there. And so there's just these amazing stories. Or like, you know, I went out and hunted. Uh, the scimitar cat. The, the, no, no, no. Not scimitar cat. No, I hunted. I hunted a big game thing. It might have been like the woolly mammoth or something. Oh. And I got like, you know, six babies, right? Because that, that's enough meat to feed, you know, everybody. Like six babies and cleared like three discs or something. It was amazing. Well, in this game, if you bring down – one of the things I love about it, if you bring down a, a large game animal, not a small game. If you bring down large game and there's a predator in the same row. That predator is going to be attracted by all of that activity and the blood and the smell. They're going to come and they're going to try to take it from you, which means you then have to fight the predator. Yes, you do. And the predators are nasty, right? Like sometimes it's better to just fight the predator than fight the big game. It's almost like if you can get rid of the predator first, Mm -hmm. you're in better shape. Because like I fought this stupid woolly mammoth or straight tusked elephant or whatever it was. And I beat it, and I had I had seven people, and I was like, "Woohoo!" And then we're coming home. Nobody died. Nobody died. Like right. the, the elephant will trample you on like fives and sixes or something, yeah. right? Because you roll one die for every hunter, and you need a certain number of successes. The success is either a one or a two, or some of the animals are kind of tough, so you need ones. Yep. And you might need one, two, or three successes. Um, some of them, I think, are four. I think the elephant might have been four. So I rolled like 
three twos and two ones and a four. And I was like, woohoo, like nobody died. Everything was successful. We're dragging this carcass back home. <laughs> and then the saber, the saber cat was like, you know, two cards away and I had to fight it uh, before I could bring home the meat. And I rolled the dice and got exactly the opposite roll. One, One dude, dude <laughs> survived. <laughs> Everybody else was eaten by the damn saber cat. So I ended up with like a net gain of one from what I had started with, right? Because I lost, I like a gain six, lost five. Yeah. It was terrible. But like it, it was a story. Like I, I will remember that sequence of events for a long time. It was just funny, you know? So this is definitely like some people say like, okay, you know, is it a game or is it a simulation? Is it a game? Is it an experience? I would say it's all three. Mm-hmm. It's all three. Definitely. Um, so why do you agree with me about that? Cause I've talked um, a lot. Why would you, you say it's all three? I would say it's all three because, um, yes, in the, in the end of the game, you are trying to be the best tribe or the best Cro-Magnon or Archaic or Neanderthal that you can be. And, you know, there is going to be definitely... There's victory points. Yeah. There's victory points. And there is a winner. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it really is kind of more of an experience because the couple of times that we've played it, I mean, there was the one time where poor Carter, his entire um, species had gone Lazarus because yeah. he lost all of Everybody. his dudes. They Everybody. were all dead. <laughs> so he's still in the game. But now it's just like these these subtle echoes of this, right, right. you know, tribe that he used to be, and and he's not even really in it anymore. Right, right. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely an experience. Um, I love the way the, the the cards come out for the daughters because you you have to go through all this pain and suffering first, based on things like the chaos mm-hmm. or. You know, if it's particular ice sheets, sheets, or even just the blizzards, this I thought was brilliant. Where you have to have enough hunters to save the rest of your tribe. So two hunters for every elder and every unmarried daughter, or they freeze. And I mean, like to me, that that's a really interesting way to kind of tell a story. And so you feel immersed in what you're you're trying to do. And I had plenty of rounds where I rolled. No successes, and I'm right. sending these dudes out, and I'm like, "Wow, you, you guys know, are terrible! They're terrible! And you're like, they're you're the like, worst! Yeah, you're hunters. like, you guys suck! <laughs> like, I don't like these hunters at all! I need somebody better than this, but I, there was nothing I could do. Yeah, and you imagine and, uh, them coming home to the wives, they're like, right. they're looking at them like, really, nothing? Right? You got, you couldn't even bring home, you couldn't even, you could brought home nothing, right? <laughs> but I mean, at one point, I had like four wives or not four wives four daughters right four daughters yeah. so you know i had all these great bonuses and then the next round later There's three of them died yeah, yeah because i couldn't protect them right so you know you, you've got they were lot. unmarried yeah, they were unmarried they were so there is quite a lot built into this that really just makes it an experience yeah yeah and that's one of the things i appreciate about it and with any good Phil Eklund game, it takes a playthrough or two to really wrap your mind around it. Right. Because there's a lot of different mechanics you have to remember, and it's all icon-based. And once you learn those mechanics and those icons, yeah, then you can really get into it a lot more. Yeah, the game moves pretty quickly it does once, move you, once you understand it. Yeah. But it, it definitely – and the rule book in this one is better than Greenland's. Yep. Um, I think Phil's getting better at uh, producing rule books. Um, I'm not going to say this one is perfect yet, but it's pretty darn close. I mean, it does a good job of explaining right away what are the components, what do they represent, what are you trying to do. And then he gives you the sort of details for each individual phase. Um, it's a great reference book, as are most of his rule books once mm-hmm. you know the game. But when I think about trying to sit down and learn Neanderthal compared to trying to sit down and learn Greenland, this was easier. Now, maybe that's because I already knew Greenland. But then when I think back about trying to learn Pax Perfuriana, which was really difficult, really yeah. hard. Um, and then I think back to trying to learn Origins, which was impossible for me. So I think that there's an evolution here in his rule books and his rule writing, which I think is, is definitely an improvement. Um, so moving in the right direction there. I like the card design and the art. I like how it shows the animals in relation to sort of a shadow outline of a person. So you kind of see what their size is. Yeah. You get a really neat kind of a um, – there's a nice uh, palette to, to the cards that is uh, 
just really well done. So all of the text is still there because, you know, Phil wants to teach you things. And all of the icons are still there. But yeah. the, the art design is much softer, a little bit larger. It's not quite um, – it's not like period piece. Like he's not – you know, he's not using actual photos or whatever from, uh, you know, these particular, it's all illustration based and it's really nicely done. So I like there that. There aren't really many photos of me. No, 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 not, not too many. You know. no, no. So <laughs> it's, it's really, really nicely done. So, uh, there's so many other things I could talk about in this game. There's your sexuality card, um, whether you're promiscuous or whether you're pair bonding or harem holding mm-hmm. or, uh, and, and that has a whole huge effect on how you play the game. If you're pair bonding, for example, uh, your daughters give you no benefit until they're married. Yes. So, you you know, in other cultures, your daughters will give you benefits even if they're unmarried, right? And then there's these other cool cards. Um, you know, for example, if you are promiscuous, you can never have a husband. You can never be a husband. Yep. But what you can do is you can go and court a daughter. And if you're successful, you leave behind one of your cubes. Yes. It's your offspring. It's like your little illegitimate <laughs> baby running around, you know, because you can't be tied down, man. You no, can't tie you me totally down. Can't. I'm just, but I'm just spreading my love wherever I go. <laughs> and every one of your cubes is worth a point at the end. Now, of course, your cube is always the first to die. Yes. Um, you know, when, when a, another tribe uh, takes one of your color cubes out. Uh, but yeah, it's just thematically like that. I love that. It's like a little genetic echo, right? So it's like you didn't stick around long enough to be a member of that tribe, but your DNA kind of crept in there. And, you know, who knows if that if that uh, imagined cube survived to adulthood and passed on those genes, someone else. So there's this really interesting and that's the simulation part of the game. You know how the brain works, how the the brain is kind of uh, um, how how language and experience develops the brain to the point where you go from being simply vocal to tribal um, managing when to do that. When is it beneficial to do that? When is it not? Um and then, you know, the, the sexuality cards and the, the sexuality cards will change the victory point um, tallies subtly mm-hmm. between one side and the other. There's like two sides to the sexuality card. Um, there's all of these different things that are in play and all of these different ideas, which are just incredibly fascinating from a sort of science um, and history standpoint. But at the same time, from a gameplay standpoint, the mechanics, uh, once you learn them, are pretty smooth. Everything is understandable. You can find any questions you have in the rule book. Um, it really becomes uh, about the excitement of the probability and how many hunters do I need to send here uh, in order to have a reasonable chance of success or can I just really just wing it? I need three successful hunt rolls with this thing and I'm only going to send three dudes. And then, boy, when you hit it, of course, it's one of those standing moments where everyone's cheering and you're like you know yes you know i nailed it right you're like so happy and then other times you send like seven (laughs) and you need two and you roll like nothing you know and you're like you've got to be kidding me you people are terrible and they come home and you can imagine them like head down like all sort of abashed and ashamed of themselves because they couldn't get one stupid fish (laughs) among seven of them you know stomping on the ice or something right scaring all the fish away so I could go on and on about the thematicness of the rules. Like if two different groups go hunt uh, the same biome, there might be conflict or there might be negotiation. And after all that is done, whether it's conflict or whatever, anybody who's still left there can hunt there, but it's always going to be the fewest hunters hunt first and then the larger bands. And, you know, Hey, if you're, if you're in a small group, you travel fast, you're quiet. If you're in a large group takes longer, like every part of it kind of like the theme comes through for me. And so is it random? You know, people ask me this all the time. They're like, is it like Greenland where it's just chucking a bunch of dice? Yes. You're still going to be chucking dice. There is still a large random factor in the game. But is it without skill? No. No, there's definitely ways to play this game well. And like I found that out from my first play to my second play to my third play to my fourth play all the way up to my fifth play. I've gotten better each time. So there is randomness. There is dice rolling. Things will often not go your way. You will flip a card that says chaos. It'll wipe out half your guys after you finally got some. You know, there there will be just random horrible things that happen to you. But that's part of the story of mankind. 
mm-hmm. is surviving random horrible things that happened to us, right? And not everybody survived, and some species did die out. And I felt bad for Carter, but it was like the last two turns of the game, and he finished watching. He was a good sport about it. And we had a lot of laughs about it. And, you know, he still scored a decent amount of points. Yeah, he did. Because all the stuff that he had in his vocabulary and all the stuff that he had, um, you know, with with, – what else did he score some points for? Um, Trying to remember because, like, all his people were dead. So we got no hunter points. Um, but he had some daughter cards. He had some daughter cards. And the daughter, daughter cards. cards were worth points to him. He had the, the sexuality card where the daughters were worth three points. Yeah, it's either three or, yeah, it's either three or so four. So it was really he, beneficial he actually, for him. Yeah. He did okay, you know. So, I, you know, I, I would say to people who are wondering about this compared to Greenland, I think this game has more depth. Because of the whole vocabulary mm-hmm. and the brain chart and flipping, it's not just a matter of iron and wood and, and things like that. It's it's what we're really dealing with here is the development of ideas, the um, the evolution of a species. Uh, when you flip to your tribal side, for example, it's much easier to withstand chaos. You don't really have that problem. There's one elder that will keep things under control. And you don't have these horrible random chaos events. But it's almost impossible, if not impossible, for you to recruit new daughters. You know, like you can't participate in those, that part of the game anymore. So one part seals off, another part opens up. Mm -hmm. And so there's all of these interesting things that happen in the game. So um, for those out there who are hoping to get a a real idea of exactly how the game is played, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't know that it's possible. But I hope that everybody out there listening got a, a feel for the flavor of the game and what it feels like to play this game and the things that you're going to experience and the stories that you're going to have and the challenges that you're going to face. So for me, Neanderthal is a big thumbs up. Uh, what about you, Lloyd? I love this game. I, I actually want to say that this is one of my new favorite Phil Eklund games. Nice. Uh, because, do you like you it know, more than Pax Pamir? Do I? Yes, I do. Ooh, I do okay. like this right. more than Pax Pamir. Because for me, in the, the, the PAX series, um, I'm still very partial to PAX Perforiana. Yeah. Maybe because that's the one that I am so familiar with. Right. But PAX Premier is a much shorter game. Yeah. Well, it can be, yeah. It can it, be. Yeah. And it's got that, you know, cool little setup where you've got the cards, or if you have the, the nice version, like you've got the board. The map, yeah. So you actually have a little bit of, like, locale spatial. and mm-hmm. spatial things. Um, but I still love PAX Perforiana. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I would definitely play, I think, this one over Greenland, actually, right now. You too, play this over Greenland. Because yeah. I think I would got, too. Yeah. I, I love the way your brain works in this one. Mm-hmm. I love the way your daughters actually influence how your brain grows. Yes. Because your daughters are the only ones that can let you put those language yeah. chips onto your brain. Right. It's called and your portals. Yeah. Your portals. And I think that's such a cool move. Because it, it, it kind of forces you to eventually go and get some of these daughters instead of trying to save your language and conserve it. Because when you use that language for your daughters, you don't have access to those chips until you clear them. So there's right. a lot of cool things going on with this that I really appreciate. Well, it sounds like uh, you and I are on the same page on this one. Um, and, and not surprising because I think we're both fans. Uh, and for people who are interested too, uh, Phil did design this so that you could play Neanderthal. And then you could immediately go and use a little bit of the sort of end result that you got in Neanderthal and play Greenland. So he kind of has it so you could do like a back-to-back game. Um, And so I think that's a really interesting idea. I haven't tried it yet, but I just did want to let people know that it is an option. So uh, that's our review, and those are our thoughts about Neanderthal by Phil Eklund and Sierra Madre Games. So the last game we're going to talk about uh, tonight is a game uh, by Alexander Fister and R&R Games. It's called Mombasa. Uh, this is a game that kind of took a lot of people by surprise and by storm uh, in this year's Essen show. It was it was quite, uh, there's a lot of buzz about it um, at Essen, and it was kind of a bit of a surprise. Like a lot of people had heard about Nippon and had heard about some of these other games that were coming out. Um, you know, great games like, uh, you know, 504, uh, Nippon, 
uh, what were some of the other like just really big titles um, coming out at uh, Essen last year? And this one kind of, I think, flew under the radar a little bit. I don't think a lot of people knew about this one. And basically what you have here is you have this really interesting game. It's kind of set in the colonial era of uh, African history. And there are uh, companies. You know, each player kind of is, is representing a company uh, that is trying to sort of uh, expand influence uh, in the region, and uh, they kind of can do this by investing in four different of the traditional kind of African uh, uh, companies uh, that are, you know, based out of Cairo or, or other locations. There's four of them. They're kind of orange, white, red, and uh, black or, or, or gray. I can't remember. I think it was either black or gray. And so, what you're looking to do is you're looking to expand those companies' holdings in Africa. You're looking to open up diamond mines uh, if you can. You're looking to sort of, in an abstract way, increase sort of plantation production of things like bananas and coffee and uh, cotton and, and different things like that, Egyptian cotton and, and whatnot. And uh, so what you're going to be doing during the course of the game is uh, each of you has sort of your own little uh, company board and you have a deck of cards. And this is like a deck building game, but it has a very, very unique twist to it. So each player starts off with this kind of little deck of cards that represent uh, investments maybe in different industries. And there's a little bit of differentiation. Like I might have um, uh, more sort of banana cards than anybody else does, but somebody else has more coffee cards than I do and, and, and so on and so forth. Each of those cards has a different value on it. And then there's also uh, Explorer cards. These are cards that are going to allow you to kind of expand the territory of one of those four companies onto the map and discover new things or gain new influence or what have you. And then there's also cards that are called bookkeeping cards. And these are cards that are kind of uh, going to allow you to advance on a little track that's on your own personal kind of company player mat. And you're going to be gaining points by doing this. And in order to do it, you can think of like each space on this bookkeeping track is like a hurdle that you have to jump over. You have to meet the requirements in order to move your lovely little inkwell marker. It looks just like a little inkwell, doesn't yeah, it? it does. Uh, you know, along this track. Meanwhile, you're also trying to develop your diamond mines and you're trying to increase uh, the value of your diamond mines or um, in thematic terms, you're trying to open new mines and, and you know, bring in more diamonds, etc. So you're going to be gaining points throughout the game. It really is kind of a point salad kind of a feel. It almost feels like a feld in that way mm -hmm. because you're going to be gaining points from diamond mines. You're going to be gaining points from the bookkeeping track. And these are significant amounts of points. Like this would be like 20, 25 points uh, at the end of the game. You're going to be gaining points uh, on the map. And most importantly, you're going to be gaining points by investing in these four different companies. And depending on uh, how many trading houses of each of these individual companies are placed out on the map at the end of the game, and the victory point kind of numbers that are revealed underneath them, because this is one of those games like Terra Mystica and other games like it where the board starts with everything covered with these little trading houses uh, for the four different companies I've been talking about. And every time you expand, you put one of those out, and underneath there'll be either nothing or a victory point value or something of that nature. And that's going to largely determine the value of the company shares at the end of the game. So if you're heavily invested in companies that are uh, heavily represented on the map and you have a lot of shares, you're going to clean up. You're going to get a lot of great points for that. If, however, you backed a dog or no one else really developed it with you or uh, there are ways that you can actually eliminate company influence on the board and replace it with another company's influence and you can kind of find yourself behind the eight ball for that, um, there's all kinds of clever interactions and things that are going to happen. Uh, and, and that's going to swing the game and swing a lot of points in the game. Finally, the most interesting mechanic in the game, at least in my opinion, is this idea of you have your deck of cards, and what you're going to do is you are going to play cards into slots uh, in front of you. And those are the actions that you're going to take or the uh, sum of the goods. So remember the cotton or the bananas or the coffee mm -hmm. or what have you. The sum of the value of those cards is going to allow you to um, 
you know, buy a new card from this card display that's constantly refreshing and rotating like a, uh, a large conveyor belt, okay? And these cards might give you uh, endgame bonuses. They might give you shares of stock. They might give you more of a particular type of good or a more efficient card, a more efficient bookkeeping card or a more efficient explorer card or what have you, right? And so you're going to use those cards to buy more cards. You're going to do your exploration actions. You're going to try to move your inkwell marker on your player board, investing in companies on the board. And then when you're done... You have to take the cards that you played and they move up to the top of your board into stacks that kind of mirror the stacks underneath your board. And this then is one of the more fascinating parts of the game because what happens then is before your next turn, you're going to be able to pick one of those stacks above your board to take back as part of your hand from which you will select your new cards, but the others have to stay out there. And so you have this really interesting hand management aspect to the game where you're not just thinking about what cards do I want to play, but where do I want to play them? Because then they're going to go into this discard stack. So I'm setting myself up with discard stack A for a big explore action, whereas discard stack B, I'm trying to put a lot of cotton in because there's a card that's on the display that I want, but it's rather expensive. Discard stack C is the one that it's got my bookkeeper in it. I don't need to worry about that right now because I'm not looking to do much. And so there's all this thinking that goes involved in where do I put my cards, where do they go? And then during the course of the game, you have the option to open up new slots Um, If you progress past a certain point on your company board or on your diamond track, you can open up new slots. And then that allows you to play even more cards. But then your cards are diluted Mm -hmm. because then you have four or five different discard piles. And now you're not seeing your cards or you're not getting back three or four cards when you take a deck back. You're only getting back one or two. And so there's so many different variables and cost, reward, and benefit kind of analysis you have to do. It is crunchy, it is heavy, it is fascinating, variable, it is challenging, it's unique, it's got so many different things going for it, uh, Lloyd. That, that, that's just kind of a summary of the gameplay, as much as I could do. Um, what, what are your thoughts about this one? I will totally agree with this hand management thing, because that was, I think, the coolest part of the game to me was looking at the cards that I have in my hand, but then looking at these discard stacks that I've made and trying to decide, like, what am I going to do at the end of the round? Which one am I going to pick up? And what do I need to then keep in my hand or possibly play out of my hand to get into that same discard pile? And I mean, yeah, there were a couple turns I remember playing where I was just, I was almost shut down for a moment because I'm like, oh, There's so much you have to consider with how you play the cards and when you play your cards. But then it also gives you the chance to almost like design your own combos. Right, right. Which is really cool because it's not then just this random draw of cards. Like I know what's coming back into my deck, so I know what I'm preparing for. And that's really neat to me. Yeah, that offers a lot more opportunities for strategy rather than just that tactical, you know, because so many of these games where you're kind of deck building, because you really are, you're deck building mm-hmm. in this game. Um, you you kind of are then subject, as you said, to the sort of randomness of the reshuffle and can I get the cards that I want in my hand? Well, because you have some control over where those cards go and you know you're going to be able to pull one of those stacks at the end of your turn – it really does give you much more opportunity to thoughtfully plan out what you're going to do rather than hoping you get the right cards in your hand. So I would totally agree with you on that. Um, The game is not easy to teach, I will say that. And the game is a bear to set up. That's probably Mm -hmm. my biggest complaint about the game is, my God, there's a lot of pieces and parts and individual decks that need to be separated into the A stack, the B stack, the C stack, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, pulling out the start cards, figuring out where, you know, who starts where on what company track. Um, You know, there's just so many different... And then there's the variables depending on um, the number of players, you know, in this... you know So... I will say that it's a bit of a pain in the butt to set up. But once you start playing, it plays pretty smoothly, Mm -hmm. other than the 
head-holding analysis kind of paralysis stuff <laughs> where you're like, oh, my God, what do I do now? Or how can I figure out a way to get where I want to go, you know? I don't have quite enough exploration points. I'm looking at this card. The Diamond Merchant card is going to let me move up on my track more if I control. For every two Diamond Mines I control, I get to move up another one. So if I can fi find a way to get enough Explore points to get to another Diamond Mine on the map before I play this card, then that means that instead of going up one, I'll go up two. And so... You can lock up. Like, you can just go into a skid, you know? You, you just, like, crank the wheel. Yep. <laughs> you just slide. Um, but it's it's mostly pleasant, you know? I think if you were playing with, with uh, people who are really prone to AP, this game will lock them up. No doubt about it. Um, but if you're playing with people who are not quite as obsessive about that, I think it's, it can be uh, played in a reasonable amount of time and is very enjoyable, highly strategic. Um, one of the things that, that I found interesting about the game, too, is I've played the game several times now and tried to see, like, I find the bookkeeping track annoying. Like, trying to set up there's these little tiles that you get that look like little books and you put them on your track and it'll it'll give you some sort of requirement like you have to have three of this and two of this in order to be able to pass this book on your bookkeeping track and you can actually pay to kind of hop over one if you need to but it's very expensive money's mm -hmm. hard to come by in the game at times and so i kind of found the bookkeeping track to be the most convoluted for me, you know, my wife loves it because she loves puzzles. Right. And so to her, it was nothing but a big puzzle track. Like, how can I figure out how to arrange things in the best way so that I can move multiple times? Because you can move multiple times mm -hmm. if you can meet the requirements of several tiles at once kind of a thing. Um, I found it kind of annoyed me because I don't like that kind of puzzly thing. And so I've played games where I've largely ignored it. Mm -hmm. And I was pleasantly surprised that I could do that. Like I could still win without the game. The game forces you to do a little bit of everything, but you can specialize, I feel. And so there are games where I've specialized on the map board, trying to really uh, push to get majority shares in like two companies, which is really hard to pull off. Um, and I've had games where I've pushed my diamond mind, where I've like gone all the way to the top of the track on the diamond track. Well, that was my whole focus. And I, you know, have kind of pushed the bookkeeper to the side. Like, the only thing I want to do with the bookkeeper is get to the end of the first row so that I can get the extra card slot, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. But other than that, I'm like, you know, hey, if I, can, if I can move and accomplish something, great. If not, I don't care. And usually I'll move a few more spaces along that track in the second row and, and get some nice little points. But I like the fact that it doesn't force me to do everything. Mm -hmm. There are games like this kind of point salad kind of game where – you really can't ignore something in the game or you're definitely going to lose. I kind of found in this one that I could prioritize, I could focus, and I could still have a good chance of winning. You know what I mean? I don't think you can ignore it entirely, uh, certainly, but I think you can sort of pick and choose what kind of direction or focus you want to go uh, towards. And a lot of that, I think, is driven by the card display and the cards that you see and the ones that you want to buy and, and things of that nature. So, uh, you know, there's so many other things in this game we haven't talked about. The company tracks have little bonuses and mm -hmm. bonus action spaces. And there are sort of common action spaces that are available every round that people can snag. Um, the, the mechanics of how to kind of play your actions out and how you do things, absolutely fascinating. So many parts of this game... I just really find this game to be challenging and fun, and it's another huge hit for me by Alexander Pfister. I mean, so I, I was kind of surprised. Remember that day we were playing, and we're like, we played Mombasa, and we're like, oh, this oh. game's kind of cool. And then we're like, hey, look, I got this little card game from uh, Velma over at Game Surplus. Uh, oh, my goods, let's play that. And we played that, and we're like, oh, this is kind of clever. And then there was another game we played. I forget what it was. And then we looked Port at... Port Royal, man. Uh, yeah, Port Royal. Port Royal. We played yeah. Port Royal. To with end the, the night. expansion. Yeah, yeah, with the expansion. Yeah. We're like, oh, this is fun. You know, we'll <laughs> just do a nice little light game of Port Royal. And then as I'm putting the games away, I like looked. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> These are all Alexander Pfister. I'm like, I don't know who this guy is, but I like him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, he really 
has become a designer for me to watch. And I think I said that on the Oh My Goods uh, review that we yeah. did an episode or two ago. Um, really, really an interesting designer. Uh, Lloyd, do you have any other thoughts you want to share about Mombasa? Um, I just really appreciated the fact that this <clears throat> this game gave me enough to think about without it being painful. You know, I don't tend to lock up too much in AP, and it, it happened maybe a couple of times. But um, I like the fact that there's so many different things that you can do. And like you said, you can specialize and still get a lot of benefit out of it. I thought it was interesting that when you get these little book things to go into your book track, you can put those books anywhere you want. Right, right. Which was fascinating to me because usually if you're building a track in a lot of Euros, you just go to the next spot on that track right. as you're building. Whereas this one, you could really, really try and plan for the future. Yeah, you set yourself up. And yeah. set yourself up, and which is why Joanna likes it so much, that it is a puzzle. And if I see, well, I'm not going to be able to do this part right now, but maybe two or three rounds from now. So I'm going to put this book farther ahead right. and know that I have to fill in to get to it. Mm-hmm. But with what I'm going to fill in, maybe I'll get some stuff that's easier for me to do. And then I'll get to it a lot quicker. Right. So, right. yeah, I mean, just I really appreciated the amount of thought that you need as a player to play this game. Yeah. But it's not so much that it makes me not to want to come back to it again. Yeah, yeah. I like the fact that I'm going to think through this game and I enjoy the experience of it. Right, right. Well, you know, I would agree with that uh, as well. Um, apart from the fiddly setup, I have no complaints about the game. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's very challenging. Um it's mildly thematic. I'm not going to say it's really thematic. Um, it is a point salad kind of a Euro game, but boy, it's a good one. Yeah. Um, so I, I really do appreciate that about the design, and, and I think it's a lot of fun. It's definitely something I think everybody should check out. So that's our review for Mombasa. Well, that's about all the time we have today for this episode of Quick Looks, episode number 14, in which we reviewed the Golden Ages, the Golden Ages, Cults and Culture, Neanderthal, and Mombasa. I want to thank, of course, my uh, sponsor, Gamesurplus.com. If you're looking for any of these titles, go and check out uh, games at uh, Gamesurplus.com and uh, send an email to Velma, and uh, if she doesn't have it in stock, she'll be sure to get it for you. They are a fantastic resource for gamers. Their packaging is superior, shipping speed is lightning fast, and uh, they just go above and beyond for the customer. So go and check them out at Gamesurplus.com. Thanks to them for their support. I also, of course, want to send a shout-out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. If you're in the northeastern PA region, northern New Jersey, southern New York, they're just a hop, skip, and a jump away off of Interstate 80. Go and check out all that they have to offer at The Gamer's Edge. They are a growing resource for game fans here in the region. Conveniently located off of Main Street, there's a ton of great shopping and restaurants and other places to visit as well. So why not make a day of it? Stop off at the Gamer's Edge, and if you do stop by, tell them the Longview sent you. I, of course, want to also thank uh, the Dice Tower Network. Longview is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, and want to thank them for their continued support. Go check out all they have to offer at Dicetower.com. So, for Lloyd Keller and myself, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening, and have a great night. <laughs>